Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Lochi Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, my name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer. I work in the publications department at ASCP. So today we've got a fine group of people and we're going to talk about conflict. I know that that's a big issue in every workplace, but I think especially so in the healthcare environment. I'm really excited to see or hear what they have to say. I'll let them introduce themselves now. Hello, my name is Kareem Sergi. Uh, I'm a pathologist based in Denver, Colorado. I currently own and manage Surgy Consulting, where I offer expertise to medical groups in various aspects of practice management and leadership. I'm also the current co-president of the American Pathology Foundation and the chair of the CAP Practice Management Committee. I'm really glad to be with all of you today. Hello, uh, my name is Marissa White. I'm in Baltimore, Maryland at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm an assistant professor of pathology. I practice general surgical pathology and breast pathology. However, I am a clinician educator um, and deeply invested in increasing and promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion um, for our learners with the long-term goal of mitigating health disparities for our patients. I'm also a member of the ASCP Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and I'm really happy to be here today to discuss conflict. Hi, my name is Paul Pacho. I am a faculty at Rutgers University School of Health Professions. I teach cytology, master's level cytology. My background is in cytology, bench work, as well as laboratory management prior to starting my position as a lecturer at the university at Rutgers in Newark, New Jersey. Thank you all for joining us today. This is going to be a great discussion. Before we get started, I've got a little bit of uh, housekeeping to take care of. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. I guess I just want to start off by asking everyone what, in your experience, is the most common areas of conflict in a group, such as pathologists or laboratory professionals? I'm happy to go first on this one. So in my consultation business, I have the privilege to work with groups of colleagues from around the country. Uh, small groups, large groups, private, commercial-based, academic. And there is a common theme of challenges, of conflicts that run throughout uh, these constituencies. And if I was to summarize the three or four most common areas of challenges, often leading to conflict in their workplace, I would rank them as follows. First, conflicts related to leadership or lack thereof, including uh, governance and decision-making. This is probably the most common source of conflict. People don't know who the leader is. Sometimes the leader himself or herself doesn't know that she is or he is supposed to lead and how to lead. The second source of conflict has to do with communication. 
we assume that communication has been performed in a group, but often a lot of decisions are made in total darkness and uh, people, colleagues are really frustrated about the lack of communication and this creates a lot of conflicts. Conflicts related to perceived lack of transparency or unfairness in workload distribution. The feeling that we are working much harder than the person next to us is a source of conflict, no doubt. And not having a process or a policy or a model justifying how workload distribution happens in a workplace is also a source of conflict. So workload distribution is a big source of conflict. And finally, just to limit it to four, I would say that tensions related to lack of trust between physicians, in between physicians, and between physicians and management leading to a fractioned approach to problem solving instead of having a strong partnership between physicians and management in conflict resolution and problem solving. So those are the four that I see the most commonly around the country. And then do we think that conflict in the workplace is always a bad thing? Or is there a productive utility of conflict as well? I don't think at all that conflict in the workplace is a bad thing. And in fact, I will qualify my answer. I will say that it really depends on what we mean by conflict and how we manage it in the workplace. The word conflict has many definitions, including competition, opposition, incompatible ideas, interests, actions. I will submit to you that a healthy competition of ideas in the workplace is a sign of engagement, energy, life. If that energy turns negative or becomes the source of personal clashes and animosity, then the conflict that started on a positive note may have been poorly managed and may have been allowed to become unproductive and potentially destructive. This is really, really where leadership and management roles becomes crucial by always nudging what I call healthy conflicts away from a dynamic of negative emotions and personal attacks. I would truly be more worried about a workplace that has no conflict. It may indicate that people are hiding or repressing their opinions or that they have completely disengaged from their group or department. I, I just want to say I absolutely agree with Kareem. Conflict is actually very, very healthy. But I also wanted to bring up a cultural dimension to this as well. A lot of culture, you know, such as Asian culture, they stress um, harmony over, uh, or at least the appearance of harmony over perceived conflict. And there is a tendency to try to avoid escalation or conflict, at least on the surface, as much as possible. So yes, I would normally I would say, you know, conflict is very healthy. It helps us to work better together, to learn how to work better together. But I think there's also a cultural dimension to it as well. Uh, Marissa, do you have any thoughts on this? I think 
Kareem is spot on and Paul as well. Um, I, and I think a lot of the concepts that you brought up, Kareem, that touch on the workplace translate to the learning environment as well. There often is conflict in the educational environment um, between learners and educators. Issues that you touched on about communication um, and perceived lack of transparency, a lot of those translate into the um, learning environment. From an educational perspective, a lot of those same themes translate into the educational space. But you're right in that um, productive, healthy conflict plays an important role in moving education forward and making sure that our curricula are as robust and and, and current as they should be, um, that bi-directional conversation about our opportunities for growth and diverse opinions about what our curricula should include are really important to making sure that we're providing the highest level of education possible for our learners. So I agree that uh, you know productive conflict, um, healthy conflict are essential to the learning environment and the work environment as well. And, and moving towards it, the collective goal of being at the forefront of whatever space you're trying to be at the forefront of. I mean, just as an aside, there is a, a saying, uh, at least in French, but I think it translates well in English too, which says, be aware of still waters. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you get to a point where nothing is moving, everything looks quiet, but under the surface, there are a lot of conflicting currents, considering that we're talking about conflict. I would rather see forming water, knowing exactly what's happening, then it's still water and not knowing what's happening underneath it. So conflict is good. <laughs> I love that. It's like when your toddler is too quiet, there's something bad going on. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, some, there's something going down for sure. <laughs> exactly. So we've talked, you talked a lot about the educational value of constructive conflict. Do you think we are teaching people that in medical school or just in any in any medical programs? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Loti. I think now the medical education community is, is starting to place increasing value on non-clinical skills that are really essential to being productive in the clinical working environment. So emphasizing health disparities and diversity inclusion as core elements of the medical of the medical curriculum. Um, again, they're not clinical skills, but recognizing that they are important professional skills to have in order to be successful in a future career and whatever you end up doing. Um, so I do think that a lot of medical education programs are starting to place increasing emphasis on um, different aspects of diversity, which naturally brings the conversation of conflict into um, view because your you know, diversity inherently brings conflict because when you have diverse opinions, you're going to have different conversations about various perspectives on conflict. I would add to what Marisa just said, the fact that conflict resolution is one aspect of leadership and I believe that in general, in general, our medical students, our medical residents, medical, I mean, our pathology fellows don't get enough leadership, education, training. It's not really part of the curriculum in many academic centers. Other academic centers are doing a wonderful job. And this translates later in their career by the lack of leadership skills. They may be fantastic pathologists, diagnosticians, attendings, but a lot of those leadership skills, including conflict resolution, 
uh, are missing from their daily practice. And I know, Lottie, that you have done a lot of work with the ASCP Leadership Institute. I'm currently involved with the American Pathology Foundation. The CAP is looking into it. So our professional organizations, specialty and subspecialty organizations, the APC also, have identified this as a needed area of additional education. Once it's brought to completion and it's ongoing work, I think our places of work will become much more harmonious because a lot of time conflicts don't need to happen and happen because of the lack of some of those basic leadership skills. Yeah, I also wanted to add from the uh, medical laboratory bench technologist perspective that there's traditionally not much in the way of conflict management, leadership management in the curriculum. But I think there is a, a more of recognition in recent years about the need for those because the roles of uh, laboratory technologists, technicians are evolving as well. There's, for instance, uh, cytology, pap smears are no longer the bread and butter, you're not expected to sit in, in the back of your uh, cubicle and uh, for eight hours a day and not have any contact with other uh, departments. There are more interactivities going on. Uh, cytotechnologists working in hospitals are expected to go on the uh, rapid on-site FNA, fine needle aspiration adequacy assessments, where they interact with radiologists. They talk to the, uh, the radiologists. Uh, they also work with the other molecular departments in terms of triaging these uh, specimens. So there are a lot of interconnectivity going on. And so there's definitely um, a need to also re-examine and also incorporate some of these conflict management components into the curriculum as well. And then I have a question. At how can we distinguish between conflicts that are productive and effective, which is really what we've been talking about so far, and conflict that is not appropriate, that is illegal, such as discriminatory conflict? How can we make sure that the conflict that we're having, that we're able to recognize, like, oh, this is, this is good conflict? Who wants to start with that question? I can try to go first on this one. I believe that. Productive conflict is about facts, ideas, trying to improve processes. So you immediately detect a flavor of two parties or more trying to advance an issue. Instead of unproductive conflicts, which in my opinion are personal based, you know, you are a bad person. I don't like you. I don't like the way you talk to me. So when it turns to personal attacks, by definition, 90% of the battle has been lost. Instead of focusing on how to make things better, people are focusing on personalities and emotions take over instead of the brain taking over and trying to solve a problem. Uh, so that's how I detect a bad flavor of conflict. And this is when a leader has to step in immediately to redirect the conversation toward a more productive dialogue, a more productive conflict, a good conflict. In terms of illegality and discrimination, 
I mean, it can be blatantly spoken, acted upon, or it can be, again, an undercurrent where you feel it, you know that something is not right because it's a repetition of a pattern that doesn't make sense based on who works in the workplace and with whom you are associated. But unfortunately, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, in my book, it's unfortunately, it's not always openly stated because if it was openly stated, you could do something about it immediately. You could correct it immediately. When discrimination happens as an undercurrent, then it takes more time to detect and it becomes more difficult to correct with time. So our antennas need to be out on a consistent basis to detect that undercurrent of discrimination, of illegal and unethical discrimination that needs to be identified in the workplace. You basically have to think of conflict is us against a problem versus me against you. Is that a correct summary? Okay. I could have said it in one sentence, but then the podcast would be much shorter. But thank you for summarizing it. <laughs> oh, Marissa, get a comment. Yeah, I, I was just going to agree that, th- that there's this loss, there's a, there's a loss of an alignment with a common shared goal in unproductive conflict. Not talking about the illegal conflict, but when you know unproductive conflict, there's not a shared goal, and then obviously illegal con- you know conflict, you know there's overt mistreatment and discrimination based off of gender, sex, sexual harassment, humiliation. In, in the learning space, you know, when grades or clerkship evaluations or performances performed in a punitive manner rather than being objective, you know, those are certainly the more dramatic examples, but the, the unproductive conflict, you know, there's loss of that shared goal. And Paul, yeah? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that, I mean, to agree with both uh, Kareem and, and Marissa, because, um, you know, personal attacks, when, when it's, it's hurled at you, immediately you shut down, right? The communication sort of stop effectively. You stop listening to what that person had to say and you start gearing up you know, to defend yourself. So it's not really about reaching and communicating anymore at that point. It's, now it's about war. <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's absolutely important to focus on the issue at hand and not to direct anything at, at the individual level. So what are some ways in which diversity concepts such as equity, inclusion, how can they be a cause of conflict or can they be? Marissa, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. So again, diversity inherently brings conflict because you have different perspectives, different values, different you know, core beliefs. And when you think about diversity, diversity looks as diverse as the word is. Um, so you have generational diversity, you have gender diversity, you have racial and ethnic diversity, language and cultural diversity, professional backgrounds in terms of diversity. You know, thinking about, you know, colleagues that I've trained along the way with, you know, in medical school, I had colleagues that were fresh out of college. And then you had other individuals in my class that had a full career before they went to medical school. So diversity can be very vast and broad. Um, and those different life experiences naturally bring a different perspective to these conversations about shared common goals. Those different perspectives and different opinions are really valuable because thinking about, again, to being a medical student, you know, as a learner, if you're thinking about, you know, what are my needs, you know, my learning style as a medical student coming out of undergraduate, 
with no family, you know, my educational needs are very different than someone that might have a full family or might have a full-time job. And so thinking about the different perspectives are really important to making sure that everyone in the class has the opportunity to thrive. And thinking about residency, the same concepts apply. You know, if you're thinking about work-life balance for residents and trainees, you have to be really mindful of the different experiences and different competing interests for time that our trainees have. Um, And taking that into consideration, the conversations about workflow for trainees or how to ensure that trainees are learning the core curriculum um, and able to, uh, you know, thrive during training. Um, So diversity definitely brings very valuable perspectives to the table as, you know, different life experiences can be shared um, and bring a different viewpoint. Well, and I think, too, I mean, you you all talked about at the beginning how conflict can actually increase our learning and, you know, not only having a diverse workforce will increase our productivity and our outcomes and just make us a better organization. But then learning from the conflicts that may arise because of those will clearly add to our learning as well. Exactly. Yeah. Kareem? I wanted to add something to what Marisa just said. I agree 100% with everything Marisa said. To me, diversity is about respect. I mean, it's as simple as that. And I'm going to give an example that has nothing to do with race, gender, age, uh, none of the classic definitions of diversity. Something much simpler that I'm sure Marisa and Paul and me and many colleagues on the podcast today have experienced which goes back to the principle of respect. Sometimes you are in an audience of physicians, of other physicians, and something is being discussed and you state your opinion and somebody will say, oh, you wouldn't know you are a pathologist. You don't see patients. You know, it's as basic as that, not respecting the diversity even of specialties present in an auditorium or in... And your immediate reaction is this person is an imbecile, an idiot. I mean, you are already primed to attack back and to let them know that 70, 80% of every decision they make in their daily life is based on a diagnosis issued by the lab or by a pathologist. So we think of diversity. We have been primed to think about diversity in big, big terms because our society needs to think about it. I mean, we still have a lot of uh, inequality in our society, so it's definitely very much needed. But diversity can be much simpler than that, and it's all about respect, you know, respect all the tenants around you, cytotechs, medtechs, lab assistants, pathologists, secretaries, janitors, Everybody brings something to the table, and it's just a matter of treating everybody with respect. This is how I understand diversity. I don't need CNN. I don't need Fox News. I don't need any news outlet to define it for me. It starts at home. It's part of your basic education, and that's diversity to me. And if we can teach that to our kids then it becomes much easier for Marisa to teach it to her residents in an academic setting or to me to discuss it with my staff in a community-based pathology department. It starts at home. It's as simple as that. Um, I also want to add that, um, at least in the workplace, I think that lack of communication about diversity 
uh, is also the basis for a lot of the conflicts that I see. For instance, I'm thinking about my past experience working in the lab and how at that location, we had a large population of a certain religion, people with a certain religion, and they need to practice, they need to pray three times, three or four times a day, at regular intervals throughout the workday, basically. And they needed a, a, a quiet place where they can, just for five minutes, doesn't need to be long, where they, they can be alone, they can kneel down. They prefer to kneel down and pray to God. And it's a very essential part of their, their religion. However, you know, when it wasn't communicated adequately to colleagues, people just think, oh, these people are slacking off. <laughs> you know, they, all of a sudden, at a certain time, you know, they're just gone. You know, they're nowhere to be found. And I think at least in, you know, at the workplace where, where I was at, we, we later accommodated them by providing a quiet place, uh, not just for them, but for anybody who wished to, to be alone for a little bit, they can sign up for that usage. Um, and so I think proper communication is also really, really important in um, approaching this diversity conflict in general. I think this is a good kind of segue into a question I wanted to ask about microaggressions. Uh, earlier, you guys talked a lot about, or you touched on, I guess, the idea of undercurrents, right? Where there's maybe not explicit conflict, but people, but you know something simmering under the surface. And it's, I think microaggressions can kind of be a small outward display of those kind of undercurrents. I want to talk a little bit about how damaging that can be to a workplace environment. Marissa, can you maybe kind of touch on that? Yeah, so just to, just to frame the conversation. So microaggressions are uh, interactions, either intentional or unintentional, that create some sort of subtle verbal or behavioral or you know, I mean, when I say behavioral, I mean, you know, it could, it could include anything from a you know, physical reaction to you know, outright verbal comment um, or environmental when we're thinking about, you know, what's in the environment around us, you know, what kind of pictures on the wall, et cetera, that incur some sort of snub or slide or insult directed um, at individuals based on their characteristics, whether it be race, class, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, gender, language, anything. Um, and, you know, going back to Karim's example, just being a pathologist or in pathology, your example was a nice example of a microaggression. And again, they don't have to always be intentional. Individuals that, you know, commit a microaggression, you might not be even aware of it. Um, but either way, they communicate some sort of unspoken bias against um, an individual that can be negative, it can be derogatory, it can be hostile. And again, the microaggressions might not always be verbal, it can be environmental, and it could be something as simple as a micro-invalidation where um, you're just not validated in the way that, you're, that you know, someone else would be validated. Either way, um, they can be pervasive and chronic. And you know, thinking about the still water, that, that nice metaphor, individual could be, you know, experiencing significant microaggressions and just be very quiet, but not be as productive in the workspace or might not be doing as well in the classroom because they're dealing with those chronic microaggressions that have a negative impact on an individual's self-identity, self-esteem, um, productivity. You know, there, there have been a lot of publications on the impact of microaggressions on learners, and there's data that show that, you know, learners that are subjected to chronic microaggressions end up experiencing depression or having to reach out for therapy. Um, so they can be very significant and detrimental to productivity and just overall well-being. They can be very detrimental and damaging to the workplace and learning environment. 
Um, so it's really important to identify them as a leader. Um, again, Kareem, going back to your leaders knowing how to lead, being able to identify those microaggressions and then adequately intervene and interrupt those microaggressions when they're observed or when an employee or a learner confides in a leader that you know they are being subjected to chronic microaggressions, being able to interrupt them in a productive way and educate um, individuals within the space that are committing the microaggressions, for lack of better words. And I think it's important to mention, too, that, as you said, microaggressions can be very subtle. And it's if someone experiences one microaggression towards them every once in a while, that effect is very different than getting one every single day or multiple times a day, because the chances of a microaggression only occurring once is very, very rare. It's most it's the constant berating of these very subtle comments of, like you said, behavioral cues that just wear people down. You know, it's not, like you said, it's not a productive, it's not a healthy environment for anyone to experience those. And often we think of uh, microaggressions as going from being hierarchical, you know, from uh, a, somebody being supervised, from the supervisor to somebody being supervisor. So coming from the top down. I can give you an example of a microaggression that goes the other way, you know, from down to up, if there is such a thing, you know, in the, the hierarchy of a lab. And it can be as subtle, as Marisa said, as rolling your eyes. You know, when somebody speaks, you know, you just start rolling your eyes. I was the president of uh, my group for many, many years, and uh, we had close to 40 pathologists in my group. And every time I had a partner's meeting, we were 30, 35 people in the room, and I started speaking. I mean, keep in mind, I'm the president of the group. Every time I started speaking, predictably, predictably, I knew that one or two of the partners would start rolling their eyes. It's like, am I uh, saying something that stupid that deserves rolling of the eyes every time I open my mouth? And at some point, I had to, you know, reach out to them and say, help me understand. You know, I'm, I'm doing my very best to explain things as well as I can, at being as honest as I can with the situations, different situations we're facing. But I can bet real money that you will start rolling your eyes as soon as I stand up to speak about an issue. So help me understand what is it that causes this rolling of the eyes so that we can reach a situation where I come up smarter, at least you are perceiving me as being smarter at addressing your issues. And we had a good talk about it and it kind of went away. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's not always from boss or from supervisor to supervisee, it goes the other way around. And uh, microaggression can be unconscious. Sometimes you start rolling your eyes because of, as Paul mentioned, of your culture, of your preconceived ideas, of what you think you know of an issue. And it's like, here we go again. Let me roll my eyes. By the time you do it, it's too late. Somebody has noticed it and is already offended by it. So we really need to be conscious about that. And I think that's also a really good example of something, how you turn something that is very unproductive, such as an eye roll or a microaggression, 
into a productive conflict by addressing it, by having a conversation about it and hopefully resolving the issue. Yeah, so I think that's that's right. We all spend a lot of time at work, probably uh, at least one third to one half of, of our lives are spent at the workplace. So it is, you know, everybody's responsibility to make sure that um, the work environment is conducive to work and everybody's respected or they feel respected. Uh, so that's really, really important. Like Kareem said, it's not just the leaders, it's everyone involved. That's very important, yes. I think, Paul, your theory, what you just said really resonates. I mean, you're right. We spend so much of our time at work. It's difficult to maintain that focus and recognize that individuals have enough going on in their lives. And then to be subjected to microaggressions at work, I mean, it's just it just makes it that much more difficult you know, to maintain your confidence when life is challenging at home and then you come to work and then it's challenging at work. It's just it just makes that much more challenging to maintain your confidence and to continue to be productive and learn and and work and collaborate when it's just psychologically it's diff- it gets it can be very difficult. It's it's a, such a good point from Paul from Marisa because yes we spend a lot of time at work but we often forget that we take what happened at work back home. And then all of these microaggressions of feeling demeaned and disrespected and not appreciated and frustrated, unfortunately, can translate into behavior at home. Now, many of us pay really very big attention to that, to not take it home. But uh, we have many, many examples where it is taken home and it translates into marital problems, behavioral problems, disconnection with the kids, etc., etc. So the fact that we spend so many hours at, at work and then go home is such an important point to make, to make sure to leave those conflicts and those micro and macro aggressions at work and not take them home. I want to kind of jump off something that uh, Kareem talked a a little bit about earlier, he kind of gave an example of a conflict in the workplace and how he sort of worked to resolve it. Marissa and Paul, can you guys kind of think back in your career and think of a conflict that happened and how you worked through it, how you resolved it, or maybe how you didn't, how maybe you wished you would have knowing now what what you didn't then perhaps? Sure, I, I can start. So I'm, I'm thinking of a conflict that uh, with one of the tech that I managed uh, a few years ago. Uh, and just a, a little background information, this particular place of work is a commercial laboratory undergoing a lot of uh, restructuring, merger. So understandably, the turnover was really high. And at this particular department, the cytogenetics department, it was in particular had a lot of people leaving including the manager. So I came into the picture when my boss came over to me and said, Paul, you know, I know that you know nothing about cytogenetics or, or at least very little, but um, you're, you're in cytology. I would like you to help out overseeing this particular department so that um, uh, at least the standards are taken care of because you, you still need to maintain the quality and accountability of the employees. And so the issue really is, for me, was with this one particular tech who was really vocal and openly negative about decisions. And, and whenever I talk in a meeting, 
like everyone mentioned, there's there's little rolling of the eyes, you know, that sort of thing. And and when one person does it, the other sort of picked up on the vibe and it just negatively impacts the environment. And so I spoke to her about it once or twice and and it it wasn't really helpful. But luckily at the time I was I I was I was taking an enroll in the uh the leadership institute that ASCP provided. And I had just taken a course on conflict management. Um, so I, I'm aware that there are many different conflict management styles. If one didn't work, I can try the other one. I began instituting a lot of these one-on-one regular uh, meetings with each of the uh, person in the department. And we talk not just about work, but more about their, their aspirations, not just what they're doing now in terms of their duty, but their aspirations and for the for the workplace and what they hope to get out of it. And so they they felt like they're they're being understood and they're being cared for. I also put up public comment boards where if they have ideas they want to improve, they can just put it up there and they know that we can we will discuss it at the uh, monthly meeting uh, that we all have together. So so through the you know the public comment board, the techs know that there will be opportunity for their voice to be heard so they don't need to vent privately. And that sort of helped them to focus when they're, when they're working. Um, and through the monthly department meeting, they know that whatever concern that they have, it would be brought up. And, and the, with the regular one-on-ones, I was able to bridge the trust and form a little bit of a professional bond with these people. The situation between that one particular tag and I improved uh, through the one-on-one and through the changing dynamic of the department environment. And so that was one case where it worked It worked well uh, with this one conflict. You know, the three of us are invited to talk about uh, conflict resolution. So we may be giving the wrong impression that uh, we have always handled conflicts in a perfect manner. I have mishandled conflicts more times that I can count. What I'm trying to say here is that you can read about conflict resolution. There are techniques, there are ways of de-escalating a conflict. There are ways at uh, getting better at it, but we are all human beings. And sometimes emotions take the best of us and we start drowning in our all emotions and we say things and we do things Uh, we shouldn't have said and we shouldn't have done. And it's okay. It's part of being a human being. As long as you know the rules, as long as you become better at it, as long as you have some techniques, some basic skills that allow you to remind yourself that you're going the wrong path and give you time to de-escalate a situation, you're going to be fine. But to sit here and to claim that uh, all conflicts are handled in a perfect way, I would be lying to you. And uh, I think nobody can claim it. It's part of being human beings. It's just an attempt at doing it better, but it's a continuous struggle. God knows there are times when I feel like punching somebody, but you have to learn to not do it and de-escalate and be productive about it and get the best out of a situation. So I just wanted to say that to make sure that I didn't come across as uh, this saint who always does it right. I wish it was the case. It's not. 
I think that's so important, though, the awareness that conflict resolution can fail sometimes. That's important because it's okay because it happens and it's natural and it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It shouldn't be internalized and, and perceived as a failure if you aren't able to come to a an agreeable resolution and conflict. Sometimes, like you mentioned, it's just it's just difficult. But that recognition that it happens and it's okay is also equally as healthy and a part of the process. Exactly. And there are very few conflicts that are irreparable, right? Even if you if the conflict resolution has failed. You can always try again and then try again. And you can even say, you know, you can literally say to the person or people we ever got conflict with, we're really trying to resolve it, but it's not working. What can we do together to resolve it? Like it doesn't have to be just from, from one side. Yeah. And the good news is that there are studies showing that 95% plus of conflicts can be resolved. However, When we say 95 plus, one needs to keep in mind that 5% of conflicts, no matter how much you try, no matter what you do, it's not going to lead to a solution, to a conflict resolution. And you have to be fine with that too, as long as you gave it your best and you tried again, as Marisa and Lottie mentioned, you gave it your best more than once. And then at some point, you need to move on. You cannot just fixate on a conflict if it's not moving along. Yeah, I think that's a great point at that point, you know, just get to a place where there is a level of respect that is doable. Clearly, the more respect, you know, the better, but at least that it's workable, that people can be professional together and then just move on. So you all talked a lot about some skills in resolving conflict. So what are some important factors when facilitating conflict resolution? And is there some way that we can become better equipped when fostering those productive conflicts? I'm happy to to go first on this one. And I'm going to start with a very simple skill, which is to clarify the nature of the conflict. You know, sometimes you have people rushing into your office, screaming at each other, all hot, steam coming out of their ears, and you're trying to understand what is going on. What is it they are disagreeing about or they are disagreeing with me about? So the very first step before engaging into this battle and going all guns blazing is to understand, explain to me what the conflict is about with simple words, simple sentences, as devoid of emotions as possible. And then once you understand what the nature of the conflict is, I think it's important to show EQ. EQ, which is empathy intelligence. You know, if somebody is stating something that is really important to them because it really affects their happiness, their satisfaction with their work, uh, their productivity, and your body language, or even worse, your language is, ah, no big deal. Why are you bothering me with it kind of uh, reaction? You are sure to add fuel to... Uh, the conflict or to the tension or to the challenge. So after understanding the nature of the conflict, it's really important to show empathy, whether it's important to you or not. If it's important to the other person, 
it has to be important to you. Otherwise, you're not going to really connect with that person and be able to help each other, help them or help each other re reach a solution. So the next step to, in my mind is once that has been done, as simple as it sounds, I would say that 70% of the path has been crossed already. The rest of it is about details, identifying potential solutions, identifying potential obstacles to the solutions, agreeing on next steps, making sure who is responsible for what in accomplishing these steps, and monitoring progress and keeping communication open. Not a one-time off. Of You were in my office, you were really uh, fuming and uh, steam was coming out of your uh, ears. We talked about it. I'm happy you left my office quiet and then you never heard back from me. Communication and follow-up has to be part of conflict resolution to show that those steps that were agreed upon are being accomplished. And if not, why not? We hit a snag. Lottie, you need to know that I hit a snag. I promised you that I would take care of it next week. I may not be able to. Let me get back to you in 10 days with additional follow-up. It's all about respect. Again, you show respect for the person and the issue, the conflict is going to take care of itself. I, I wanted to point out that it's also important to focus at the very beginning on, on our own reaction to this conflict. A lot of times, I think that we become hijacked by our own emotions. For instance, my first initial thought when you approached me and you brought up this problem and you were saying it in a way that that was not respectful. So my initial reaction was perhaps just to burst back at you. But people say that the neural circuit pathway for anger is a lot faster, travels a lot faster than, say, the rational side of your brain. So I, I, a lot of times I think it's, it's important to, you know, take a deep breath, you know, just to kind of calm things down. I've heard others told me they, they count to 10 mentally when they have to deal with something very, very, uh, you know, when they have something coming at them like that, they would count to 10 slowly, one two, three, and by the time they get to, you know, maybe five, then they can start. They feel calm enough to start. So, so I just wanted to point that part out to slow things down a little bit when you feel the urge to fire back. Yeah. And it's also totally okay to say, I need to take a break. Like, can we, this is, this conflict is very challenging for me. Can we talk about it an hour from now or tomorrow, or just having, you know, creating some space between exactly like you said, those emotions and those reactions so that we can be less reactive and a little bit more proactive and effective. Mm -hmm. I, I would just add, I agree. I think self and situational awareness are so important. So being aware of your emotions, how you're feeling, and then the situation, reminding yourself of what our shared goals are, what someone else's concerns could be, recognizing that um, everyone has diverse background, and um, there may be a different perspective because inherently you're in different roles. So just, again, awareness of yourself and how you're feeling, and then awareness of the situation are, are helpful tools to approach conflict in a more productive way. One quick thing I'd like to add, Marisa just mentioned uh, we are in different roles. Sometimes the same person assumes different roles. 
And when you are approaching somebody and you know that you, you assume different roles, for example, you could be a department chair, you could also be a chair of the peer review at that hospital or chief of staff. So it's important to announce which hat you are wearing uh, for that particular conversation because it takes a completely different uh, flavor, if I may use this word. If you are approaching somebody as chief of staff of that institution versus you are just approaching uh, that person from the very specific uh, angle of a specialty uh, supervision. Announcing the hat you're wearing puts the entire conversation that is going to happen in its proper context, especially if you are close, a close colleague or a friend to that person, because friendship has its limits when it crosses the boundaries of institutional priorities. So if you are approaching a friend as chief of staff, it's different from approaching a friend as a friend and saying, hey, we need to talk about something. Let's have a casual conversation about it. So framing the context is also very important in that situation. I think you guys have made some, some good points about how we frame conflict, not just always a problem with the other person per se, but to realize that we are a, an equal participant in whatever is happening. And um, especially, I think, with like long-standing conflicts, because a lot of people in pathology and laboratory medicine, they stay in their jobs for 20 years, right? And so anytime you're in any sort of relationship with anyone for 20 years, even if it's obviously just a colleague, just a colleague at work, you're going to have those long-standing unspoken conflicts, right? And so you might approach that situation as like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I, I could talk to her about this, but it always ends up with X. Well, it always ends up with X because you always do the same thing too. Like if you change your approach, the outcome can be different, right? You don't have to follow the same script you followed for five years or whatever. So I think that's, that's a really good thing to remember. I want to talk a little bit about burnout. I think there's a big conversation happening right now in pathology and laboratory medicine about retention. And it's not just people retiring and we're having a hard time hiring enough people, though that's part of it. But it's also people work in the lab or they're pathologists for two or three years and they get really burned out really fast and then decide they want to pursue other other careers, right? I want to ask you guys what sort of role these types of conflicts and poor conflict resolutions, how that contributes to burnout and therefore kind of our staffing crisis that we're having you know, nationwide. Burnout is not only happening in uh, pathology and in the lab industry, it's happening in healthcare in general. It affects uh, nurses, uh, physicians of all specialties, anybody working in healthcare. The rate of suicide uh, among healthcare workers is second to the military. I mean, this gives you an idea. So what we are doing in our healthcare places is causing a level of burnout similar to our soldiers fighting and having bombs being dropped on them. So that's how intense it is. Paul was describing this flooding, uh, this overwhelm, overwhelming uh, feeling that uh, sometimes he feels when somebody comes to his office and is, starts a conversation in a, in a disrespectful way, and he's tempted to fire back and he has to count to 10 to calm 
himself or to five to calm himself. What Paul was describing is uh, physiologically proven. I mean, it's really the, the old brain, the paleocortex fighting back. It's a fight or flight. Somebody's attacking you. Your first reaction is to fight back, either to fly uh, away from the situation, which is stressful in and by itself, or to fight back, to punch back verbally. Uh, this has been proven to cause high blood pressure, chronically unresolved. This has been proven to cause high blood pressure, diabetes, heart problems, arrhythmias, behavioral changes, suicidal thoughts in the extreme. So it's not just based on we think it's bad for you. It's proven to be bad for you. Unresolved conflict, chronically unresolved conflict, chronic microaggression, chronic frustration at the workplace, chronic disrespect is going to affect your health and will cause burnout. What do we do about it? First thing, we need to be aware of it. So many institutions are not aware of it and, and are not dealing with it. So many of our colleagues are not aware of it, or if they are aware of it, don't want to deal with it. You know, when I was your age, we used to do 50 times more work and it didn't affect us. Well, great for you. Times have changed and we need to adapt to times of today, today's uh, ways of working, today's assumptions, etc. So what I'm trying to say here is that uh, being aware of it is not enough. It has to be a concerted effort to address it. In addition to conflict resolution, anything that can affect people's happiness, satisfaction, productivity in the workplace has to be looked at, and it has to be a concerted effort by all parties involved to address it and correct it. I just wanted to add one, one minor thing. I, I also think that laboratory professionals, a lot of times we, we work sort of in the background. And so at least prior to COVID, we work in the background and so that people don't really know what we do. So in, in addition to dealing with all these things that other professions are dealing with, we have to deal with the fact that nobody really knows what you do and you don't really feel that sense of appreciation. Although it, it could be self-perceived, but it's nonetheless, it's out there. There's a sense that when I go to a party, people don't really know, you know, cytology. Do you sit often? Is that cytology? Or, or they, they hear, oh, it, are you, are you, did you take a lot of psychology classes when you were in school? You know, my realtor, when, when I was buying a house, actually wrote a letter to the seller trying to, to help us. And, and in it, he wrote that my client is a psychologist and he would really benefit from living in this house. So there's this whole, uh, environment where, you know, we're really not out there, we're not really not visible, that didn't really help us being appreciated. May I add something to what Paul just mentioned about um, knowing who you're working with? So Paul mentioned about a lot of our colleagues in the lab who sit in the background, who work in the background, who have less visibility than those of us who work in uh, offices interacting with 
other physicians, hospital administrators, etc. And I'm going to say something that is going to sound weird for in the context of conflict resolution, but which is so true. It has worked so well for me. It's so important to know the people who work in the background, not what they do, but who they are. One of the best sources of knowing about them for me was going to potlucks, to departmental potlucks, celebrations, birthdays, etc. Because I would see people that I had seen every day in the lab, silent, in their corner, doing their things, not interacting much with other people. And I had formulated in my mind an idea about them based on what I knew of what they did and how they did it. And then they would come to a potluck and they would start talking about their passions and their activities and adventurous trips they went on and the kind of weekend things they did with their family and their kids. And all of a sudden, it puts it in a completely different framework, completely different picture. So if I had had a conflict to address with any one of them before knowing them as people, I would have handled intuitively, I would have handled, I may have handled, let me put it this way, I may have handled the conflict very differently than knowing them as human beings of who they are outside of work. So I encourage anybody listening to this podcast to go out of their way to really know the people who work with them, not based on what they do and only on how they do it, but who they are as human beings in any opportunity offered to them, potluck, birthday celebrations, outside activities with the team. It helps a lot bringing harmony uh, in times of conflict. I, uh, I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Just remember everyone's human, right? Everyone just wants to be seen. Just uh, remember, we're all just uh, human beings trying to get through our day, right? Absolutely. Listen, I want to thank you guys so much for joining us today. This conversation was really great. I think it was really helpful. Um, I hope it's uh, helpful for our, our listeners. And while I'm on the subject of listeners, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, have them subscribe too. You don't want to miss any of our great episodes. And don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.